0: ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. It is a truth universally acknowledged that it is always the right time to read, talk, and think about Pride and Prejudice. But why is it this book that we universally acknowledge? Why has Pride and Prejudice lasted for over two centuries as the most famous romance novel of all time? This season of Hot and Bothered, award-winning journalist Lauren Sandler and me, Vanessa Zoltan, are looking closely at Pride and Prejudice, interviewing experts, and trying to figure out what this book has taught generations of readers about love. Listen to Hot and Bothered wherever you get your podcasts. Acast
1: helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere.
0: Acast.com.
2: Hello listeners, I'm Amy McKinnon, a national security reporter at Foreign Policy and this is Foreign Policy Playlist. Each week we help you make sense of the crazy number of podcasts out there by recommending one podcast from somewhere around the world. This week I'm featuring Vice's El Chapo, a podcast that documents the trial of the infamous cartel leader Joaquin El Chapo Guzman. In just a minute, we're going to play episode 7 from the series, which is called The Fallout, which takes you back to El Chapo's home state, Sinaloa, and looks at the power struggle and terrifying wave of violence which followed the Kingpin's extradition. Keegan Hamilton, a senior reporter at Vice News, spoke with me earlier to tell me more about the episode and how the series came to be. So I always begin this these interviews by asking people why they chose to to do the podcast that they did. And that feels like a really dumb question with this show because it's such an self-evidently rich uh story to tell, but I'd still love to hear it in your own words. I mean, what was it about the El Chapo story that made you think we got to do this as a podcast?
1: Well, I had been sort of reporting on the drug trade and organized crime for a while for Vice News and had been following the El Chapo case, since his his extradition, I will not forget it because it happened the day of Trump's inauguration is when he made his first court appearance. And it was such a frantic thing uh, that even managed to steal just a little bit of attention from that historic moment. Um, as I continued to sort of report on the lead up to the trial, my editor in chief at the time, Ryan McCarthy, was like, "We got to figure out a, a new way to do this, a different way to." Mm-hmm to cover this, to make our coverage sort of stand out. Um, he'd been interested in, in trying to expand Vice's podcast presence. I was interested in trying to do it as a, a narrative podcast that sort of broke out of a, some of the, you know, a lot of the tropes that you see with the El Chapo coverage and, and go a little bit deeper into the story and capture some of the nuance about how this is a, a binational story and and how Chapo became who he became uh, and the timing you know, really worked out such that, that we were able to release the podcast um, you know, as the trial was, was starting and getting underway. And so that really coalesced and, and just sort of came together at the right moment.
2: Yeah, it, it it lined up really well. I love the description in the first episode of uh, El Chapo being taken over the Brooklyn Bridge. And what did you describe it as like a coffin like egg?
1: Yeah, I would heard that from uh, some sources who were familiar with how he was being moved. Bear in mind, I we you know we saw this caravan on the Brooklyn Bridge and saw no egg. We just saw a bunch of, of cars and cop cars. Uh, but even even the fact that that's within the realm of possibility shows you how crazy everything about Chapo's story is. Uh, The journalist Bill Simmons talks about the the Mike Tyson zone where like any story you hear about Mike Tyson could like theoretically be possible. You might believe it. I think Chapo has like definitely crossed into the the Tyson zone where like you throw out some crazy story and I'd be like, okay, maybe let me check it out at least to see if it's true or not.
2: That's interesting. How how difficult was that in both making the podcast, but in your reporting on El Chapo and the drug trade that piecing apart the kind of the true stories from the myth?
1: Oh my gosh, there's, there's so hard to sort out <laughs> fact from fiction from some of these events, especially when you're talking about um, not ancient history, but distant history in, in the early 90s, mid 90s, um, mm-hmm. where anyone who was around for that, you know, a lot of those people are dead or in prison or memories have faded over the years. And in some of these historical events, you know, it's possible that we, we may never know what truly happened. For example, uh, El Chapo's first prison break where the legend has it that he was wheeled out the front door of the prison in a laundry cart, you know, hiding underneath some some towels mm-hmm. or whatever. But, you know, there's been other reporting, as we describe in the podcast, uh, from the journalist Annabelle Hernandez, saying that, you know, that's not at all what happened. He walked out the the front door dressed as a guard. You know, we heard that that came up in the trial, and people familiar with it who testified said that it was the the laundry cart version. But, you know, people are still going to believe one thing, uh, no matter what, how many people say it. And and that's so true in a lot of, not just El Chapo, but a lot of the, the sort of legends and myths that surround the Mexican drug trade uh, and the Sinaloa cartel in particular.
2: How hard was it in Mexico to get the kind of access that you did? Because you do at points get really quite up close to some some characters from the drug trade. How difficult was that?
1: I mean, it's, it's part of the reporting that, that we do advice on a regular basis is, is meeting, you know, folks who are involved in uh, illicit activities and relying on our sort of network of sources and then our fixer. And we're really transparent in this series. Uh, and I I wish that more journalists were in international journalists, at least talking about the work that fixers do and the role that they have in, you know, connecting international journalists with their sources. I mean, we rely mm-hmm. on our our fixer uh, and and my co host in this series, Miguel Anhel Vega, and his network of connections, um, and put a lot of trust in in him. You know, saying that you know it's going to be safe to go here because I've I've checked with the people who control that area, and they know that you're going to be coming, and they know what this story is about.
2: Yeah, I re- I really appreciate that. I mean, fixers, uh, you can never give them too much credit. They're they do incredible work. In I think it was in the first episode, you um you kind of acknowledged that this was an extremely Vice story. And you mentioned that there had even been someone who had kind of done a parody of like a Vice hunt for, for, for El Chapo. I mean, how did you, in your reporting and as you were kind of piecing together the podcast, how, did that affect the way you approached the story at all?
1: Uh, it certainly did. I mean, it, it was on our minds as we acknowledged in the show, there's, there's a hilarious spoof uh, called Drones of Vice uh, with Fred Armisen, uh, and Jack Black as Shane Smith, and they sort of poke fun at at these you know hipster journalists from Brooklyn who parachute into a border city and and hunt for the drug lord. And then, not so funny is that they end up dead um, in the spoof. Uh, and that's not funny in part because a lot of journalists actually die in Mexico. But but we were were cognizant of that being those those sort of blind blundering gringos who who come into a situation that's dangerous that they don't appreciate the danger or you know try to do anything beyond convey the the like ooh ah we're here of the situation Uh, and you know as we were talking about the story the the characters the episodes we kept coming back to like we we have to include the voices of people who have lived this experience firsthand in Mexico in the drug war and that was a big part of why we Definitely wanted to have our fixer and my co-host Miguel Angel Vega have his voice be a prominent part of the series because you know he's from Culiacan, Sinaloa. He has covered the drug trade for you know 20 plus years. Uh, one of his colleagues uh, was murdered, as we cover uh, in one of the episodes of the show. So bringing that sort of personal voice, authenticity, lived experience bringing it through the whole series was really critical to our mission. And it's also why we decided to do a whole, you know, adaptation second series in Spanish so that, you know, listeners in Mexico could could also process the story in a way that was their own. It's, it's a separate but different version of the show.
2: So the episode that we we're going to hear today on our show, I think, captures um, what you're describing there about, like, the experience of of people who are living through this. Do you want to just set it up for our listeners, give a give a little kind of preview of of what they're about to hear? It's episode 7 that we're going to feature.
1: Yeah, so this is is toward the end of of our series. It's the second to last episode. And in the chronology of El Chapo, this is after he's been captured for the last time and is is basically out of the game. And it's the the fallout is the title of the episode and it's sort of uh, unpacks the unintended consequences of what happens when the U.S. and Mexico arrest a, a prominent drug lord, the most prominent drug lord in Mexico in this case. And, you know, that is a power vacuum and uh, an internal struggle in the cartel to sort of fill the void left behind by El Chapo. So we we take this in a couple directions. We we go out with a, a group of women who are searching for their missing sons who were killed in Mexico's drug war. And then we tell the story of uh, the journalist Javier Valdez, who uh, worked at the newspaper Rio Doce in Cuyacan, Sinaloa, and was a colleague of my co host Miguel Ángel Vega. Um, he was killed in a, a dispute, basically, over something that he wrote. Where nobody's quite sure exactly what the motivating factor was. And that's one of the things that we sort of try to get to the bottom of in this episode is why Javier was killed and, and how that can be traced back to El Chapo.
2: That was Keegan Hamilton, and now here is the episode El Chapo, The Fallout, from Vice News.
0: Can we get a little context wherever we are?
1: This is the most famous narco-cemetery. There's been documentaries made about this. It's sort of a, a pilgrimage site for people who are interested in narco-culture. And it's just a, hundreds and hundreds of extremely elaborate tombs and mausoleums. That narcos build to live after death.
3: What? Is it
2: true that they have air conditioning inside?
3: Sometimes, yeah, some they do. Y- you'll see.
1: We're at this cemetery called Jardines del Humaya. It's on the outskirts of Cuyacan.
0: Wow, okay, that one's a house.
1: Yeah, this one is legit like a modern condo that would sell for a million dollars if you put it in uh, like Seattle or something. Some of the tombs don't just have air conditioning. They have little living room type spaces where the family of the deceased can actually hang out when they visit.
3: And you know what? They are getting bigger and bigger and more extravagant. Some of them cost half a million dollars. I've been here probably like 10 times. And when I bring people, especially Gringos, no offense guys, I look at the faces to see their expressions because they always look so astonished.
1: It's got like little you know, like dome-shaped tops with crosses. They're all very colorful.
3: This is the tomb of El Barbas. His real name was Arturo Beltrán Leyva. He grew up with El Chapo. He's also from La Sierra. And they were business partners for years until they turned on each other.
1: It's got a, like three stories with two turrets on the top and a glass door. And inside, uh, you could tell that he was an important guy because there's this huge floral bouquet. And there's sort of offerings. There's cans of Tecate Light. Uh, there's a bottle of champagne. There's uh, some statues of the Virgin of Guadalupe and of Jesus.
3: When he was, he was buried in this place, they place uh, heads of his enemies.
1: Like actual human heads.
3: Yes, here, in his honor. Holy shit.
2: That's really intense.
3: Whose heads were they? Some people believed they were his enemies, and other people said it was his people and his enemies brought the heads and placed it here. We never know for sure. This is the brother of the chapel.
1: So this one's got uh, angels sort of praying on the front, and then inside there's all sorts of stuff including a cake with a mini cowboy hat on top. Uh, there's some balloons with uh, like cow balloons. There's statuettes of deer and horses, mini bottles of Coke.
0: Oh my God, describe that stained glass window.
3: There's a stained glass window
1: of him smiling and riding an ATV with shorts on. Or is that a jet ski? Some sort of outdoor vehicle because yeah, there's maybe. Oh, there's water yeah. splashing up, yeah. He looks
3: very happy.
0: What do you think? Is this absurd? Or, like, I mean, part of me feels weird to laugh at all.
3: Always talking to this uh, psychologist, he told me the biggest the tomb, the biggest the guilt.
1: all these guys who are actively part of the violence in Mexico, and they have these elaborate graves their families can visit, while tens of thousands of regular people are being murdered or disappeared, and no one even knows where they're buried. And the violence is not letting up, even with El Chapo in custody in the U.S.
3: Episode 7, The Fallout.
2: 2017 has been Mexico's most violent year since the country started keeping records 20 years ago. At least 23,000 people have been murdered. That's one death every 20 minutes. The increasing rate is being blamed on corruption, a weak judiciary, and the extradition of drug lord El Chapo to the U.S.
1: Chapo's capture in early 2016 and his extradition that next January had a big impact here. There was a power vacuum in the Sinaloa cartel that quickly turned into a struggle between factions.
0: Without Guzman at the head, the cartel splintered into smaller gangs that battle each other and the rival new Jalisco Generation Cartel.
1: In the first half of that year, close to 900 people were murdered in Sinaloa alone.
3: Remember, 900 is just the bodies that the government counted. The actual number of deaths is much harder to know. In many cases, they find nothing, no bodies. Some people just disappear. Let's go, again. Yeah, picture this in the middle of the night. You know, no one's gonna be here. No police, agents, no nothing. So they just come, uh, dig a hole, and just uh, bury the, uh, the body.
1: In recent years, civilians, usually women, have been forming their own groups to search for loved ones who have been disappeared. They've given up waiting for the government to take action so they go out and try to locate unmarked graves by themselves. So they don't. They just got an anonymous tip. Somebody came and said, hey, there's probably a body behind the supermarket on the street on the outskirts of town. Right. Hola, buenas tardes. Hola. We're in an open field on the outskirts of Cuyacan with a group of women who call themselves Las Rastreadoras, the trackers.
3: I met Isabel like a year ago, right after... Her son was taken. She sold all her things and made her home into an office for the group.
1: This is a sign outside that says, Do you have a family member who's disappeared? We can help.
0: Hola. Hola. Buenos dias. Buenos dias.
1: Her living room is full of pickaxes and shovels. She's tacked up photos of her son and other missing men and maps of places where there might be unmarked graves.
3: Her son was a cop here in Sinaloa. He was disappeared a year ago. In that same week, nine other cops from his unit, including the commander, they were all disappeared. This happened after Chapa
1: was captured, when factions of the Sinaloa cartel were fighting for control of Culiacan. Where do you, where do you start? How do you even start to look when you have no idea where?
0: Pues con una pala y a pegarle a la tierra hasta que se hunde sola.
3: She's saying that you just keep hitting the ground until the trouble just sinks in. She says her instincts as a mother are what guide her. And she says you also start thinking like a criminal, like if I killed you, where would I bury you? And how would I disappear you?
0: color
1: So she's poking a hole in the ground and looking for the, the smell and the feel of the earth. She's like smelling the tip of this this metal rod that she's put in the ground. What does it smell like when you find something?
0: It's an olor comparado con que She
3: says it's a smell you can't compare to anything else. It's not normal. It's really strong, and that the first time you smell that, you'll never forget
0: it. de uh, la So there's like a little,
3: there's a
1: little like sort of dip, dip in the ground here, and since that's, it looks doesn't look like any other any other place that might be the spot where the ground has has sunk in because of a shallow grave they look at the ground for little imperfections, signs that somebody has been there before, places where the dirt has been disturbed, or traces of a fire, since sometimes people will burn the body before burying it. This is, this is such a needle in a haystack situation. Like, this field is huge. It's maybe five football fields, and we're in one spot that is like three feet by three feet, maybe
3: we start digging with them. They have to be really careful not to disturb what could be a crime scene.
1: So we've come upon a little mound of rocks and it looks like there's some like partially burned material on top. And since a lot of the the bodies are burned, they think this might be a grave site. While we're digging, some guys walk up to the site. She
3: says that we have to be careful of people like that because you never know who they are. But a lot of the time they turn out to be punteros, lookouts, people who check things out and report back to the cartel. So we always have to be careful. In this case, those guys we thought were lookouts just gave Isabel a tip. They said we were close to the right spot. I was asking her where the spot is, and she says, this place is so big, it's like, who knows? You just keep asking yourself where, where, where...
1: We don't find anything that day, but somehow Isabel doesn't seem frustrated.
3: They will come back here. They return to the same spot until they search every inch.
1: What what happens on on the day that, that you find your son? What do you think? What do you, you envision that day, and what is it like for you?
0: Yo creo que sería.
3: She's saying that the day she finds her son, it'll be like her soul will return to her body, almost like giving birth again. She says, like, think about it. Your mother dies, and you're an orphan. Your wife or husband dies, and you're a widow. But if your child dies, who are you? They know that what they're
1: doing seems crazy. That people see them and feel sorry for them, and think searching like this for missing bodies is pointless.
0: No, no estamos locas.
3: They also have this song they wrote to the music of an old ballad. They sing it when they are going out to search.
0: Como dicen por ahí, buscamos a nuestros hijos, señores. It says,
3: we are not crazy like they say. We are looking for our children, and no one can stop us.
0: Salimos <laughs> unidas.
2: Hi there, Playlist listeners. We wanted to let you know about Course Correction, a podcast from Doha Debates, with assistance from the same folks at FP who produce this podcast. This season, they've been delving deep into issues of polarization and tackling issues like gender, religion, wealth, COVID, and council culture. In each episode, host Nelfer Hidayat has been challenging herself to have difficult conversations and to broaden her perspectives to understand a range of opinions. Course Correction's goal is not only to demonstrate how world issues affect everyday people, but how we as individuals can affect change for the positive. Please subscribe to Course Correction wherever you get your podcasts.
1: My name's Kurt jai and this is the Theories of Everything podcast, the show where we bring rigor to mathematics, physics, and consciousness, exploring grand unified theories, as well as free will and God, even exploring aliens with former CIA Lou Elizondo, heated debates on metaphysics with Kastrup and Verveke.
3: Imagine you are an organism that spans a galaxy. How does the universe look to you?
1: Type in Theories of Everything on YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, all platforms.
3: You see that police Uh car.
1: It's like a police truck? Is that a Sinaloa State
3: Police? Yes. Ever since Javier was killed, Mm -hmm. that police car is parked there.
1: Does that mean it's actually safer?
3: Nothing is safe. I mean, (laughs) if they're coming after you, they will get you. Once you are in that list, you're you're gone. Javier Valdez was the co-founder of the paper. I worked for, Rio Doce. He was a good friend. And he was killed on May 15, 2017.
0: There's
1: no name on the book. Yeah, this is just like a building with no, it's not obvious that this is a newspaper. We have to be buzzed into the Rio Doce office. And once we're through the door, there's about a half dozen reporters sitting at desks piled high with papers. Rio Doce's main focus is the drug trade and unearthing government corruption. In their offices, there are signs of Javier everywhere. Posters in his honor, a plaque with one of his quotes engraved on it is hung up near the door. We duck into an office so that we can talk.
0: Can we close the door really quickly? Okay. Do you want to tell us a little bit about Javier?
3: What what made him so respected? The fact that he was fearless. He he loved to tell stories about people that somehow were involved in, in the organized crime and somehow were victims of that life they had.
1: What kind, what kind of a person was was Javier? Just describe, like, what was his personality?
3: He was the coolest guy ever. He was, he was so funny. He loved to eat. He loves to drink. He, we used to go to this bar just across the street. It's called El Guayabo. And the waitress, the the waiters, they knew him. They just got sitting in this table in the corner. And he just una cerveza. Just, he was, and then this was all very old lady who used to sell peanuts. He was just with this trash, uh, and he was uh, bringing these peanuts. Yeah, bring me some peanuts. And he was, he would just sit and just wait. Just I think he just enjoyed the the atmosphere of cantinas. What was up with
1: the hat? I feel like one of the things that he's, he's best known for now was his, this Panama hat. Now you see in the posters and every picture, he's got the hat. Why?
3: Nobody knows about that, but my belief is uh, Javier one day was like, p- put on this Panama hat, and was like uh, somebody else told him, Javier, you look so good in that, with that <laughs> hat on, and ever since he wore that hat It's like his Indiana Jones signature. Yeah. Javier was really well known for his column, which was called Mala Yerba. It was mostly stories people involved or affected by the drug trade. He'd written it for years. But at the beginning of May last year, he wrote something about El Chapo's second in command. Javier mentioned something about this guy's son, trying to be like his dad and take over, and sort of imply that the son just didn't have the guts. That was it. And then, after the sword run, Javier was killed. We didn't see it coming. I mean, even after I look I read the story over and over, and I was like, come on, just because he published this. So what happened
1: on, on the, the day he was killed? Where were you when this happened?
3: I was, I was in this uh, Hotel Lucerna. I was waiting for someone. In Cuyacan? Yes. Then my telephone rang, and uh, it was uh, Ismael Bojorquez, the director of the newspaper. And I, hey, hey, Ismail, he what's up? And, and there's silence on the other side. Ismail, and then I heard like s- someone crying Ismail, what the fuck is happening? And he said, Lo mataron. They killed him. What? They killed Javier. What are you talking about? They killed Javier, He was crying. They killed Javier. Where are you? I'm just uh, two blocks from the, new- the newspaper, the office. I'm, I'm on my way. So it was like I was driving, trying to find, because I didn't know where the killing took place. So I had to drive, and whenever I saw the, the, the police cars, I knew that's the place. So I just parked uh, in the corner. And uh, I, I just saw the, the the body of Javier, and uh, the the hut was next to them. What's? It was what? shocking. It was really shocking.
1: And this is right here in front of the newspaper.
3: No, just around the corner, two blocks from here. Do like you, do you like snap
1: into reporter mode and try to like make sense of the scene and, and gather information?
3: No, no, you don't think any, you don't think anything about that. You see, you a close friend lying on the ground, dead. There is this blood all over. You don't think, you don't don't feel like, I'm gonna talk to to the cops to get info or maybe to the neighbors to see what they can tell me. No, nothing.
2: Was there an ambulance?
3: No, they were gone. He was dead.
0: They didn't take him?
3: He was gone. He was, he got 12, he was shot 12 times.
1: And this is, why Rio, twel-
3: why 12? Maybe because Rio doce, you know the tr- translation for Rio doce River 12 12 times he was killed at 12 o'clock and it hit us all right in the face. Uh, after after confusion, all is fear. I had this paranoia, who's next? Who's gonna be next? Maybe, might be me, might be someone else. And in my head, I was like, I'm gonna get a gun. And whenever they come for me, I'm gonna shoot them all. Did you get the gun? No, I didn't. But I was disclosed. I remember after the killing, uh, the, the director of the newspaper uh, and Andres called me and they told me, we want you to go. Why? Go where? Anywhere. Why? Do you know something about me? Because I was, I had this paranoia. No, we don't know anything, but you know, you are high profile, just like Javier. You know, you know the people you contact to do these interviews, these connections that you do. They know you, your high profile. Leave. Okay? So, I think a few days after,
2: I left. Let them kill us all. If that is the death sentence for reporting this hell, no to silence. Those are the words of award-winning Mexican reporter Javier Veldez. Murdered in broad daylight, shot dead just meters away from where he worked. Javier Valdez was an internationally renowned journalist, exposing Mexico's drugs trade and organized crime. Writing about the country's drug cartels is becoming increasingly dangerous.
1: Javier's death is why Miguel Ángel doesn't live in Cuyacán anymore. His murder was felt around the world. There was international outcry and street protests defending the rights of journalists. I remember hearing about a special issue of the paper that came out in the days after the murder. We asked if we could see a copy.
3: This is this is the edition. Oh yeah. Big picture of Javier on the front. Yeah.
1: So this is this, is this is
3: when? How, how long after the his death did this come out? He was killed on the uh, fifteen May fifteen. So like six days later. So six days later. So six days later.
0: You
3: read the the title Rio 12 sigue aquí Javier también Rio Doce is still here so Javier oh my god and all these stories were signed under the name of Javier Valdez
2: different reporters wrote yeah under Javier that.
3: Valdez this is the column that Javier used to write it's blank. Yeah. Javier wasn't able to write not even a letter of his last column.
1: And this is this column next to it is just "Justicia Javier Valdez, Justice for Javier Valdez" over and over. Yeah. And then his
3: column is blank. I'm
0: sorry. It's so intense.
3: It is. Right now, the whole newspaper is like. Going nuts because so it's, it's it's we are like a family in real. We also, we're family. So every time they they do something to us or family member, they hit us all. This is a way of life. And I guess there is no way out. Javier getting killed, to me, that was connected to El Chapo getting extradited to the U.S. Because after El Chapo was gone, it created all this chaos and a lot of violence within his faction of the cartel.
1: And Javier wasn't just any journalist. He was extremely well-respected, and he was recognized all over the world. Yes, he was
3: and he didn't deserve to be killed like that. It was so fucking unfair. Ah, I'm okay.
0: Yeah.
3: It's been over a year now. Back then it was so crazy. A year ago? Yeah. Yeah. Welcome to Culiacan. <laughs> and the heat. And the whole thing. And actually I was driving by this, this car. Thank you, guys, for bringing these memories, oh, sad sorry. memories.
1: <laughs> we'll just make you uh, recount one of the worst days of your life in great detail, no problem.
3: I feel so good.
1: You know, Javier helped me with a story once for Vice News? Really? Yeah, I I was doing a story. It was after uh, Amaito Gordo was captured.
3: No way. Uh-huh, and I How come you didn't call me?
1: <laughs> I didn't know you. You didn't know me. But I called Javier, and he, you know, wow, gave me insights that I, as an ignorant gringo, did not have into the significance of who Maito Gordo was. Wow.
3: I mean, that was totally the kind of guy Javier was. He would help anyone. He really cared about the story, about getting it right.
1: Across Mexico, dozens of journalists have been targeted and killed for reporting on the drug war in the past few years. The Committee to Protect Journalists says 26 murders of journalists have gone unsolved in Mexico in the past decade. Earlier this year, one of Javier's suspected killers was arrested and was just recently charged with homicide in Mexico. And the Sinaloa cartel member suspected of ordering the hit turned himself in at the border last year and is now in U.S. custody. But the staff at Rio Doce doesn't believe that justice has been served. When you go to the paper's website, on the top left, a new number appears daily. It tracks Las Días de Impunidad, the days of impunity since Javier's murder. It's nearing 600 days. In 2011, Javier won the International Press Freedom Award from the Committee to Protect Journalists in recognition of courageous journalism.
0: In Culiacán, Sinaloa, Mexico,
3: He says, Where I work, it is dangerous to be alive. And to do journalism is to walk an invisible line drawn by bad guys who are in drug trafficking and in the government in a field full of explosives. This is what most of the country is living through. One must protect oneself from everything and everyone. And there do not seem to be options or salvation. And often, there is no one to turn to.
2: That was the episode El Chapo, The Fallout, from Vice News. My thanks to Keegan Hamilton and Vice News for sharing the podcast with us. Listen to the rest of the series wherever you get your podcasts. That's all from Farm Policy Playlist. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe. And if you want to suggest a great podcast, please email us at podcasts at farmpolicy.com. The show is hosted by me, Amy McKinnon, and is produced by Darcy Palder, Rob Sachs, Rosie Julian, and Simone Perez. Our executive producer of podcasts is Dan Efron.